I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Amy Gaida. She's a professor of law at Tulane University and author of the new book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, You're welcome. A pleasure to host you today. Let me ask you from the outset, as an American citizen or anyone living in this country, what's the most important thing to know about the state of privacy in America today? I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. When I tell them about this book, they'll say, uh, they'll say it's a work of fiction uh, because we don't have any privacy today is, is the <laughs> suggestion. Uh, and of course that's wrong. Uh, and what's happened over the course of the past uh, 10, 15 years or so is that courts are coming in and finding Uh, that we all have rights to privacy, certain rights to privacy, even when there might be um, uh, information that the public might be very interested in knowing. So that that clash is what the book um, is about. And uh, and I think that might surprise people to to learn that they actually do have privacy uh, in uh, a world of the forever internet and otherwise. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the default position that you're alluding to is the idea that by being a digital native today, you are sacrificing certain rights that may not be inalienable, right? That that in the internet age, you are by definition forfeiting when you buy a product on Amazon or join a social network like Twitter or Facebook. So that, that is true to an extent. Uh, but what has happened today is that uh, courts are recognizing that because being online is a way that we communicate today uh, and, uh, and uh, to, to force people offline um, in order to protect their privacy wouldn't be fair. And so therefore, interestingly, uh, what a number of courts have decided um, lately is that even when we share information online, as long as we share information to a very small group of people, not even very small, but a, but a group of people, and we expect that group of people to keep things quiet, that does not mean that the information necessarily goes public. Uh, and, um, and what I mean here is that um, uh, in the past, uh, what courts would say is if there's something, if something is put online, you sacrifice your right to privacy in that information. So if I put a medical diagnosis online, for example, courts would say, hey, you've sacrificed your your right to keep that quiet in the future. Um, That's not the case anymore. So increasingly courts are suggesting that when we share information with our friends, expecting that the information will remain with our friends, then we retain a right to privacy in the information even though we may put it out on social media. And you would say that's a changing landscape in the jurisprudence over the last decade. That's right. I think what what happened was um, when the internet began, and I was there for it, uh, when the internet began, um, there was the suggestion that 
that you know whatever was put online was fair game uh, and that uh, and that once you put it out there there was no privacy in the information uh, and people sort of celebrated that right so it became sort of a you know marketplace of ideas concept everything's out there this is a really good thing uh, but of course once um, uh, people started be started uh, being harmed by the information that was revealed so a photograph from college that a person would uh, rather not um, be out there when the person became a lawyer, for example. Uh, when that happened, uh, then um, uh, increasingly people became uh, more concerned about their, their privacy there, and now courts are being uh, more responsive to that. And when I started teaching privacy more than 20 years ago, um, uh, I, would, I would have never told my students that. So in other words, um, this concept of privacy on the internet was just so foreign at the time, um, but but courts have certainly come around in the past um, few years. Right, and and of course there is the privacy that you understand that someone is not supposed to invade your privacy, but then the reality of your cookies being sold to third parties. I mean, right. So there's the explicit knowledge according to the letter of the law or the terms and conditions of the website you're participating in. But then there's the actual, you know, maybe fine print or reality of behind closed doors where that data is being or are being transmitted. I very deliberately, Amy, asked you about the state of privacy in America um, relative to Europe or Australia or Asia. Uh, because it's very different and we know about the right to be deleted or forgotten in Europe and that that was a, an early and seminal understanding and Google as a result, Alphabet parent company, has had to operate differently because the trend you suggest is happening in the US now happened immediately in, in Europe and, and other places. That's right. So there, um, there was this, um, there was this, uh, you know, right to be forgotten, as we suggest in in Europe, um, fairly fairly quickly, uh, and uh, and yet uh, we see those interests um, here uh, as well, uh, and they've been around for a while. Uh, there's a um, there's a, a, a legal um, treatise uh, of sorts called the Restatement. Uh, and in the restatement, um, it suggests that there is a right to be forgotten. It says uh, that, for example, if uh, Jean Valjean uh, has his, the information about his past crimes revealed in a newspaper, that in fact, because so many years had passed, he could have a valid claim against that newspaper. So, um, so even though we don't think of the, the right to be forgotten as being something in the United States, uh, it actually does exist in law, at least um, in the restatement. And you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing a little bit of that today too, um, especially with regard to criminal histories. So criminal histories and, and mug shots and, um, and that sort of thing can be uh, uh, um, you know, life changing for a person um, who, um, who was arrested um, when that information goes out um, on the internet. Uh, and so again, this isn't a, a, um, a major trend, uh, but some courts have um, ordered uh, that sort of information removed from the internet um, in the interest of allowing these people to go on with their lives. Uh, and, and that parallels very much that um, 
that information in uh, in the restatement that I talked about involving Jean Valjean. Right, and and to reflect on this question of of known versus unknown invasions of privacy, how do you assess that landscape? Um, because the vast majority in, of invasions of privacy are not going to be known to the user, whether that's on the internet or uh, police scans that are doing any kind of biological detection. Um, you know, it's not just your license plate anymore. It could be your, be your, your eyes uh, or your DNA, of course. Sure. And so that I have, I have um, two, uh, two answers here, and I hope I remember on both parts of your question. Uh, number one, regarding data, uh, what that, what's happened also is that uh, there have, there's been uh, a real movement, um, not only in courts, but in legislatures to protect data in certain ways. Uh, and, so, um, and so I use in the book the example um, of something when I was a journalist, uh, someone's home address. That was something that was just commonly um, a bit of information, a bit of data that was public information. So many people knew it, uh, and therefore there could be no privacy in one's home address. Well, that's different now. Again, some courts have um, have uh, changed and um, decided that there is or should be some level of privacy in one's home address, and that's particularly in doxing cases. So, um, so courts are horrified. Some courts are horrified at um, at what goes on there, uh, and they've suggested then that there is uh, uh, some level of privacy um, in even one's home address. Um, the, the, the second part of your question is, um, is about um, scans of faces and, um, and eyes uh, and that sort of biometric um, data. Uh, and and uh, state courts have especially uh, taken hold of um, that sort of information and by statute, by law in the state, found found that information protected by privacy as well. And so, um, and so there's, there's a separate question about what the government can do with that information. Um, and, uh, and so therefore with regard to policing, but as you suggest, um, in addition, there are companies out there uh, that are very interested in that data uh, as well. And those um, state laws um, are also restricting uh, that sort of use. So again, uh, what this all goes to, I think, is um, my first point, which is that we think that um, in today's world, we don't have much privacy. Uh, but in reality, the courts and legislatures are, are saying something different. When you think of how universal the internet has made invasions of privacy, um, I think a lot, and I know your book covers, you know, freedom of the press, and we'll get to that in a moment. But when we talk about not just the press, but every American citizen and their protection, what what was robbed of the American people as a result of Cambridge Analytica and all the exposés on data leaks um, and um, poaching of data, um, you know. I am of the school that we are owed reparations for data that was stolen about each and every one of us. Um, and that is different from, you know, many decades or centuries of this history, because again, it's, it's universal. And what happened with Cambridge Analytica impacted, you know, millions of Americans. 
Right. And I should say lawyers are listening to those calls. So what you've just suggested, uh, and there are a number of class action lawsuits uh, that, um, that exist right now that are working their way through courts uh, um, that, um, that suggest that there is privacy in that sort of data as well. Uh, and so, um, and so uh, it will be interesting to see, I suspect that uh, courts ultimately, based on what they've decided so far, uh, may in fact come to agree with you. And that in these class actions and other sorts of lawsuits, uh, in fact, we will be finding um, greater protection for privacy, but then also, um, and it's, you know, there's a question about who's ultimately going to get the money, uh, but, um, but decisions uh, also with monetary value um, in favor of plaintiffs in those sorts of, those sorts of cases. Of course, we do want to talk about freedom of the press historically and in the present. Um, you know, there is the possibility that that legal landscape is going to be evolving and shifting um, to even further shield the corruption of public officials, specifically understanding the precedent that was set in the Watergate era around um, the, you know, the Pentagon Papers and the Nixon tapes and where that stands today. Um, where does it stand today? So I would say that today there, there remains this clash between the right to privacy and the right to know. Uh, and that today, uh, if you are a politician, for example, uh, it is highly unlikely that you will have uh, a, great amount of, a great amount of privacy cloaking uh, what you might consider your, your private life. And so therefore we should celebrate that uh, in a way that, um, that we do get to know at least uh, in a legal sense, um, a lot about our elected officials. That's, that's crucially important, that sort of, um, of right to know. Um, but, but and, and that's why even though we, we celebrate privacy and I think um, you know, it sounds like we both celebrate privacy, uh, we also have to be very conscious of um, having too much privacy, because if in fact um, uh, privacy is allowed to quash um, anything that might otherwise um, be, be private, um, even regarding uh, politicians, we're in a very dangerous place. And, and I'll give you a quick example, uh, and that's income tax um, returns. So, um, so income tax returns, there's been um, a real uh, cloak of privacy uh, around those for the average person. Um, and, uh, and this restatement, that legal treatise that I talked with you about before, um, that legal treatise suggests that we all have a right to privacy in um, our income tax returns. And that's great. Except when you consider then that maybe there are some um, politicians out there are who could in fact bring some sort of legal action uh, should um, 
you know, should a, a, a news organization release um, um, income tax returns. Now, I don't think it might happen. I don't think that politician would win. I don't think a president would win. Um, but it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting situation when we have so much protection on privacy grounds in that particular area. Uh, and yet we suggest that politicians have very little privacy. You know, at what point do politicians have, um, um, uh, you know, some level of privacy despite uh, the right to know um, and, uh, and also our, our, um, our, our deep concern about who we're electing um, as um, public officials, who becomes a public official in that sense. Where do you see the jurisprudence going in this direction, uh, knowing that we have this contemporary media culture that is irreversible. There is not going to be uh, a president like FDR who can withhold you know, the, his, his disability uh, for years, uh, for multiple terms as president, um, or at least the condition of his, of his disability. Um, that's not, not gonna happen. Um, what you do see with the January 6th investigation is once again, the salience of telephone records in looking at officials on the clock and off the clock and their conversation with the Capitol Police and other folks around the insurrection and uh, whether or not um, preventative measures were not implemented and um, the folks at the Capitol were, were specifically um, you know, um, with withheld um, support, security support under under those circumstances. I, I gather that's less of a of a personal invasion of privacy if these are government phones, but even if they're not government phones and they're being used around official business, then it should be a fairly clear cut case. But separate from the insurrection, and I do want to give you a chance to weigh in on that, but but. In, I, I should say, separate and inclusive of the insurrection, how do you see the privacy laws uh, evolving or at least any Supreme Court decisions that may affect privacy for politicians? I think that we will retain the way the law looks at those cases now. And that is we will, that what happens in those sorts of cases is that judges weigh the news value of the information, the news value of what's released versus the person's privacy interests. And so therefore you can imagine that uh, tax returns uh, are, I think we would all collectively say, less private than uh, is a sex tape, for example. And so I suspect that what a court would do, if there were a politician out there and there were, um, and someone released uh, income tax returns, I think that the court would say that that information is newsworthy and therefore uh, that reporting uh, should be protected in interests of freedom of the press and the right to know. Uh, I'm not as sure uh, on the sex tape question. So even though the, the, the um, even though the law suggests that politicians have very little privacy, they still have some level of privacy. And so a sex tape could be, um, could be something different. And that, that's when courts get into this analysis of what is newsworthy or not. That's why, for example, 
um, phones uh, that um, that contain uh, newsworthy information. Um, that that newsworthy information then might be protected if reported, even though we uh, even though we may not um, uh, in the everyday world have a list of um, of the the people others call. If that information is on the phone, you know, a news organization gets a hold of it, uh, then the news value in that information would very likely trump um, any um, any privacy interest in that phone, as long as um, the person uh, who had the phone was um, involved in something like the insurrection, for um, for example. Right. Of course, we're talking about what might not have been disclosed in private text, but of course, we know that the comments of the former president and Rudy Giuliani, when we talk about freedom of expression and and what is uh, permissible or or what is, you know, going to incite violence, that th that is a question too, because we know that you know Donald Trump finally was banned from social platforms as a result of bloodshed and the suggestion that his words and Giuliani's and others directly caused or precipitated the violence. And, um, and so, you know, there are inevitably class action or other suits going to be considered from um, the families of those impacted by the violence on that insurrection day. Um, it, you know, it's clear that uh, the January 6th commission is investigating uh, wrongdoing um, you know, th that was specifically withholding support of police, but where, where do you stand on the words themselves? Um, you know, they, they are fit to print and, you know, are part of First Amendment protection, but as soon as they start inciting bloodshed, uh, that becomes theoretically both a civil and criminal problem. And really my area, my, my interest is much more in um, when those words uh, that are directed at one person in particular uh, might in fact be made public. Uh, and so, um, and so I, I think that, um, that certainly that question um, then hinges on uh, the news value of the words spoken. Um, and, uh, and even though, let's say the two of us are, are you know, texting each other, um, if, if we're doing something that, um, that the government is interested in, then the government has some ability to get that information most likely in some way. Um, the, the real question then um, with regard to, um, to the privacy concerns that, um, that uh, are explosive today um, with regard to social media and otherwise is who else can have access to that information. So I think your point's a really good one that even in cases like those, um, so, so thinking about the criminal, um, the criminal aspect of all of it, there, there usually is some level of protection for that information. That information is generally not um, released necessarily, even though, even though the government has access to it, even though the other side might have access to it. Um, there might be some sort of cloak of privacy around, um, around that information uh, as well. Just a, two more questions quickly in the minutes we have left. When it comes to the trend of 
you know, powerful folks being able to sue for, for slander or libel and, and basically, you know, in, in a few cases, being able to shut down entire news operations or websites, it's, it seems like that trend is continuing and, and the jurisprudence uh, or legal precedent is supporting these very powerful figures who don't like that their sex tape uh, was, you know, basically circulated in the public domain and are going to try to, you know, sue someone, you know, to, to um, shut them down. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's, um, that's exactly right. And, uh, and it's interesting what the whole Kogan case did. I think what happened there is, uh, is plaintiff's attorneys uh, and people wronged realized that, wow, you know, maybe we can win privacy cases. Like I suggest, suggested before, um, it was very unusual to win a privacy case. Well, not so much anymore. Now, I will say this, that through the course of history, um, information about um, sexual, um, so sexual information, um, 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 nudity, um, medical information, and some financial information has always been protected in the United States. And so therefore that sex tape, by my read of the law, um, was absolutely protected and should not have been posted online, despite the fact that he's a famous person. Uh, so um, so, so you're, by not, my... you're not really troubled by the trend necessarily. Well, I'm troubled by the trend um, uh, uh, writ large, let's say. So in that particular, um, in that particular example, um, I, I do, uh, this sexual information has been protected from the very, right. very beginning of the United States. And so I think that that's, that's separate. Right. Uh, but I will say this, that, um, that back at the dawn of the internet, some federal judges were already saying to media, watch out, that, um, that uh, federal judges were, um, uh, as, as a group, uh, thought that the media had too much uh, First Amendment protection. And I think a lot of people poo-pooed it at the time, but certainly you see that in, um, in the case brought by Sarah Palin against the New York Times, for example. That, to me, is, um, is um, you know, great worry. That, that prediction back at the dawn of the internet that, um, that media had to watch out um, uh, is, um, is uh, then certainly being shown in um, the Palin case versus the New York Times. Uh, because there, just very quickly, uh, the Second Circuit um, Federal Court of Appeals, a very influential federal circuit um, appellate court um, that had been very friendly to media uh, in the past, uh, found that Sarah Palin had a valid case. That's why there was a trial, because this generally media-friendly appellate court, federal appellate court with top-notch judges on it, decided that she had a case. Uh, and, um, and where that suggests our defamation law um, is going uh, with regard to what media can report, I think is deeply troubling. So I can definitely draw a line between uh, sex tapes and, um, you know, and that defamation law. And certainly sex tapes and, um, and also uh, income tax returns. Amy Guida, author of the new book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.